Have you ever gotten in trouble for something that you didn't do? It happens at my house from time to time with five little people. You will all be shocked when I tell you that they don't always do what they're supposed to. I know, I know. And on occasion, the whole lot of them will suffer for the misdeeds of one. Sometimes the disobedience of one means that nobody's going to the park or that nobody's watching the movie. And I probably do that at my house because I remember from my elementary school days missing recess because of the one troublemaker in the class who, of course, wasn't me. It just rubs you the wrong way, right? When a big group of folks suffers because of the wrong done by one, those are light examples. Our text today has a much more serious and sobering example. And so I've given uh, this sermon your choice of titles. It's either, Is God Angry with the Church?, which ought to give us all pause, or the impact of my sin on others. Our sin really is a big deal, guys. And and it's one that we probably don't give enough attention to. But even when we do, even when we talk about our sin, we tend to talk about our sin in an individual sense. We talk about the impact of my sin to me, to my relationship with the Lord. And we don't very often talk about how my sin affects others, much less about how my sin affects the church. But our text this morning calls us to do just that. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read... The beginning and the end of of chapter 7, we'll leave a little bit of the middle out for time's sake. This is God's Word. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. 
Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And then jump down to verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. May God bless the reading and the teaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, here it is, the second week in a row we've come to quite a troubling passage. It is sobering. It is, it is scary. It is perhaps a little bit confusing. Lord, Lord why was this? And so we can't understand it rightly on our own. Our minds are bent and broken from the fall. So would you help? We know that you will. We know that you will be pleased to help. We know that you will be pleased to reveal Christ even from such a passage like this. So help, O Lord, we cry out. And we expect you to answer. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Please be seated. There's an outline for you to follow in your worship folder as we seek to make sense of this. On the heels of quite an amazing capture of the city of Jericho, when the walls came a-tumbling down, this is a stunning defeat. Who could have seen this coming? Why in the world did this happen? And if you ask, folks will give you a whole lot of reasons why this happened. They say, oh, well, if you'll just look at the first few verses here, 
There's something missing. There, there was no prayer that preceded this battle. There was no seeking of the Lord that preceded this battle. And, and, and I suppose maybe you could add that to your list of possibilities. Though we're just going to exit off the list in a moment. I suppose you could add that to your list if you wanted to. That it's possible this defeat could have occurred because of a lack of prayer and a lack of seeking the Lord. Though it really seems to me like they were being obedient. The Lord had said, rise up and go possess the land that I'm giving you. And it seems to me like that's what they were doing, but add it to your list if you want. Another reason that folks give is they say, oh, would you just look at the overconfidence of these people. They got the big head after Jericho. They said, oh, we're not even going to send up the whole army. Just two or three thousand will do. They say, oh, there's some pride there. There's some overconfidence, and, and that's what this is about. Add it to the list if you want, but we're going to cross that off too. Really, it seems to me like this was good reconnaissance. This was good strategy, right? AI was a smaller city. This should have been an easy thing, right? No sense trying to blow out a match with a fire extinguisher, right? But we're going to cross both of those things off the list and anything else that you might have thought of because the text is very clear. If we just look at how this chapter is arranged, even in how it's arranged, there's a message for us. There's a sandwich here. This defeat is sandwiched in between Achan's sin. Right? Verse 1 mentions Achan's sin. Then we've got the defeat, and then the whole rest of the chapter is all about Achan's sin. Sin, defeat, sin. So we've got this sandwich. And if we look even more closely... At the first and the last verses, it gets quite pronounced. What is going on here? What is the reason for this defeat? Look at the end of verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. First verse in this passage. Then look to the very last verse in this passage. After Achan's death, after the heaping up of stones as a memorial on top of him, then the Lord turned from his burning Anger. This is the reason for defeat. The Lord was angry. And see, this is why it wasn't, oh, they were overconfident, they didn't take enough troops. Y'all, no amount of troops would have led to victory at this battle. Bring the whole stinking army, it's not going to make a difference. The Lord was angry and he didn't want them to capture the city of Ai and therefore they didn't because God is much more interested in his people's righteousness than he is their success. Let's look a little more closely at this sin. Why was this such a big deal? It was a really big deal because what Achan did had just been expressly forbidden in the instructions for taking Jericho Back in chapter 6, very explicit instructions. Don't do this in chapter 6, verse 18. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them and you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring 
trouble upon it. I love how verse 1 of this passage captures the nature of what this sin is in its word choice. It says, Israel broke faith. That's what was going on here in the taking of these devoted things. They were breaking faith. And, and, and verse 11 goes on to further show you what this faithless act of Achan was. It was transgressing the covenant. This was a breach of the covenant. It's far more than just taking some gold and some silver. It's so much deeper. We looked last week, trying to make sense of last week's passage, we looked last week to Deuteronomy 7, which is really, really helpful. We'll look at a few verses there again to understand what God did by entering into a covenant relationship with His people and why this is so significant that Achan was breaking this covenant. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers back when He made the covenant with Abram in the first place that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. The covenant is built upon the promises of God. All that who God promises He is and will be to His people. His promise to be a faithful God. And to His people, God gives the law. He says, here's the right response for you to make for me making a covenant with you. Here's how you ought to live in response to my being God, to my being the faithful God. And if you look at what Achan did, and if you look even at his confession in verse 21, you see how he basically breaks four of the Ten Commandments that God has given in covenant relationship with his act. Look there highlighted in red from verse 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak. See, Achan was finding beauty and worth someplace that he shouldn't have. God said, you'll have no other gods before me. You will worship nothing other than me. But he saw it and it was beautiful. And there's an echo here. You ought to hear the echo of Genesis 3. Because she saw it and it was a delight to the eyes. And she took and she ate. Right? Do you hear that echo? He saw it. It was beautiful. And he just had to have it. He coveted. He desired that which he had no right to. And he took. He stole. And he hid. Which is a form of deception. It's a form of lying. Four commandments right there. Broken. Part of the covenant. Broken. 
part of Achan's breaking faith here is his doubting God, his not trusting God. Perhaps he thought he needed to take his provision into his own hands. Perhaps he thought God wouldn't do a good job of taking care of him and that maybe he could do a better job caring for himself. Perhaps, like Adam and Eve in the garden, perhaps Achan felt like God was holding out on him. He's, he's keeping me from something good. He said, don't take it. And, and he just doesn't want me to have something good. And that's not nice of God to do that. He's not being generous. And thinking like that is oh so tragic. When you read down a few verses more into chapter 8, when they do capture the city of Ai, what does God in His goodness and generosity tell the people? Take the plunder. Enjoy it for yourself. Look now, if you will, at the confusion that sin brings. I was just struck at how disoriented everyone was as a result of sin. The confusion that fell on them. They couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on. Isn't that just like sin? What happens immediately after this surprising defeat? They are shocked. Verse 5 uses this language. It says, their hearts melted. Haven't we heard that exact language already in Joshua? Twice already, chapter 2 and chapter 5. The hearts of the people were melting, but it wasn't God's people. It was the Canaanites whose hearts were melting because of what the God of Israel was doing for His people. And now the tables are turned. And the Israelites' hearts are melting and becoming like water. They're, they're mourning, they're grieving, they're in dust, they've torn their clothing, they're crying out to God, Alas, oh God, why? And they call into question God's goodness and His guidance and His promise. Look at verse 7. Why did you give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? And y'all, that's a pretty faithless question. That's a faithless question to ask of a God who has in fact promised the exact opposite. To give them the land and to defeat all their enemies. But they take this one defeat and they say, Oh, God's promise must be null and void. It was no good after all. Y'all, if there seems to be a problem with the promise of God, if there seems to be a problem in the covenant relationship between us and God, guess whose side the problem's always going to be on? They're so busy asking God what He's done wrong that it never occurs to them to ask themselves, what might we have done wrong? Maybe we're the problem. If there is one bright spot in all of this, it is the healthy progression that Joshua's whining takes. Because Joshua's whining. 
right? But the one bright spot is at the end of his whining, he makes the right turn. And you see that in verse 9, right? Why, why, why? What's going to happen to us? This is terrible. And then it's like the light bulb goes on in his mind and he says, Oh, God, what are you going to do about your great name? Now we're getting to the right question. Now we're getting somewhere. And it's as if this is the moment that God was waiting for. Because it's immediately after this question that the Lord speaks. And tells Joshua to get up. Now is not the time for sackcloth and ashes. And God, in His graciousness, lets Joshua in on what's going on. I'm angry, God says, with your little congregation here. There's sin in your midst. And you must deal with it. And if you don't, I'm out of here. I'm withdrawing my presence, which would be an absolute disaster. Much worse than this defeat at Ai. And so you know how the story unfolds. God prescribes the way for Joshua to determine who the guilty party is. Tribe and clan and family down to the guilty party. And God prescribes what has to be done when this is discovered and uncovered. What has to be done to cleanse the congregation from this sin. And so Achan, along with his family, is stoned and his remains are burned. And it's nothing if not sobering. Why so severe? Why his family too? And the text just doesn't explicitly tell us. Perhaps his family was complicit. Perhaps his family had been involved in either the taking or the hiding. Perhaps they knew that it was there and they didn't say anything. We don't know. But I get a sense here that in wiping out Achan and his offspring, it puts an end to Achan's name. It puts an end to his line. As if to say, God wants no more of Achan's faithlessness from him or from his offspring it is severe it is total and it is effective we cannot mistake the effectiveness of what has happened the death of Achan turns away God's wrath and anger we see that in verse 26 it's how the chapter concludes the death of the offender turns away God's wrath. You know, I I got my Jesus Storybook Bible out again this week, and I looked for this story of Achan's death in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it wasn't there. I 
can't imagine why not. But nonetheless, nonetheless, the, the little subtitle of this thing, which I love so much, Every Story Whispers His Name. Y'all, that still rings true even for the death of Achan. What? Y'all, the death of the offender turns away God's wrath. But, but wait a minute. Jesus wasn't an offender. He was perfect. He was righteous. And that, friends, is the cornerstone of this glorious gospel. Is that He was made to be an offender for our sake. Paul captures it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.21, another one of these beautiful gospel in a single verse verses that you ought to memorize. For our sake, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Of course Jesus didn't have any sin. Of course Jesus wasn't an offender. And that's the very reason He could become one for our sake. The death of the offender turns away the wrath of God. I want to wrap this up this morning and lead us to the table by talking a little bit about the corporate nature of our sin, because we've got lots of language in this passage about Achan's sin and what Achan did, but there's also just as much mention of what Israel did. Verse 1 says, Israel broke faith. Verse 11 said, Israel has sinned. Israel has transgressed my covenant. Now, Achan obviously pays a steep price, but Israel suffers too. The whole nation suffered defeat. At Ai, 36 lost their lives. God threatens to withdraw His presence from the whole lot of them. And we might think that our sin is just between us and God. But we would be sorely mistaken. Because the reality is that our brothers and sisters in the church are affected too. We bristle at this. We don't like it, right? Especially with our Western individualistic mindset. We don't like this. But the truth of Scripture is we've been called into a community. We've been called into a body, into one body. Not many bodies, one body. And God's trying to get us to see that we're a part of one body and we can't do without the other parts. And in fact, we are responsible for the other parts. God was angry with His people as a whole because of the sin of one. And we would be fools to think that Israel at Ai in that moment was the only time God's ever been angry with a congregation of His people. And we really need to give this some serious thought. Because just like here at AI, it really is a matter of life and death. That your sin, that my sin, that sin in our midst 
is really a life or death situation might be a struggle for some of us. Well, I don't know, life or death. Okay, it's a big deal, but life or death, really? See, we struggle with this because we're not in the practice of stoning people and burning their remains anymore. That's not in our book of church order, fortunately. But in a sense, that puts us at a disadvantage. What? Now, now hear me. Do you think that the folks that participated in and or witnessed the death of Achan and his family, do you think that that lingered with them for a while? Do you think that when they walked by that heap of stones, that memorial on top of their remains, do you think maybe they shuddered with fear? Do you think maybe they had a sense of sin's seriousness? What about in the early, early church? Do you think that when the lifeless bodies of Ananias and Sapphira hit the floor, do you think that the seriousness of sin maybe stuck with people for a little bit? That it was for them a warning. But see, we don't have those vivid pictures in our minds. Even though our sin is no less deadly. Now you might not die as a result of your sin because of being stoned or burned. But your sin is just as deceitful. And it can harden your heart and it can lead you away from the Lord. For eternity. The, the writer to the Hebrews got this. This is a passage that we actually prayed for you as elders at last month's meeting. We looked at this verse. We reminded. We prayed this for each other and for you. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Y'all, we're in relationship for a reason. We've got to take care. We've got to listen to each other carefully. We've got to detect in our conversations with each other, uh, it seems that my brother here is beginning to doubt the goodness of his God. It seems that my sister here has begun to see something as more beautiful than her Savior. Or you know what, I heard your comment about the situation that you're facing. And brother, it really seemed, it sounded like you're hopeless in this situation. And the rubber hits the road when we will risk the awkwardness of speaking into that. 
of reminding our brother or our sister, of exhorting them, of warning them. Do we, do we love that much? Do we love enough to say, no brother, he is a good God and he's always faithful to his promises? Do we love a sister enough to say, to remind her of the beauty of our Savior and His singular worth. He alone's worthy of our adoration, of our affection. Do we love enough? Y'all, that's how we take care, as this Hebrews passage says. And so that's part of how we need to come to the table today. Is being reminded in something called <clears throat> communion, right? which is not just our communion with the Lord, but with the saints, right? that we're coming to be reminded again that the death of the offender turned away God's wrath, that there is a beautiful Savior who sacrificed Himself for us, and that that's not just this individual thing between me and Jesus. But that's this thing that we share together. And then in a big way, we sink or swim together. That if we are trusting Him, if we are finding Him to be a faithful God, then He will be in our midst. And He won't be angry with us. But He'll be pleased because we're trusting in Him and in Him alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would You...